There was an astonishing degree of support for the IRA uh, in the War of Independence in New York. There was support uh, from New York Police Department, from the labor unions, there was support from the Catholic Church. Over the summer of 21, the truce is declared with Britain. That's all well and good, but there's no, there's no truce in the hunt for O'Connor. Uh, they are going to get him. Okay, very good. Uh, Mark, th thank you very much for sitting down and enjoying with me. Um, I, I finished off the book last night. Fantastic read. Anyone who's into Irish history, particularly War of Independence, e even if you've read, even if you've read like the existing stuff on the War of Independence, it, there's plenty to learn about this. Um, you you might tell us, uh, you might tell us a bit about your own background, how, um, how you came to be so interested in, um, in this kind of event and time that that you wrote a book about it. Oh. Uh, well, thanks for having me, John. Great to be here. And um, uh, essentially, I I got into this because I had written um, an earlier book called uh, The Sons of Molly Maguire, which was about the origins of this, you know, secret agrarian society in, in Ireland um, that popped up um, right on the eve of the famine and uh, and then kind of migrated to the whole fields of Pennsylvania um, in the 1860s. Uh, so I was always interested in the Mollies because um, there are like five generations of Irish mine workers on my mom's side of the family. Uh, and they all came from uh, South Ulster, you know, uh, Cavan, Fermanagh, uh, uh, those areas where the Mollies were most active in Ireland. Uh, and when they came to, when my mother's family came to this country, they settled in a place called uh, Cast Township, Pennsylvania, which uh, was a mining area. And that happened to be the cradle of the American branch of the Molly McGuire's. So I was always um, kind of interested in uh, how the Mollies got started, if anybody in the family was involved, uh, that kind of thing. And I ended up uh, writing a book about it. And one of the reviews of um, Sons of Molly, I think it was in Irish Historical Studies, uh, it was a nice review, but it mentioned in passing um, uh, one of Peter Hart's books about Cork. And so I went to read that book and was astonished to find a one-sentence reference to the IRA shooting an informer uh, in New York. Now, I work for the New York Times and I have access to our electronic, you know, database going back to 1851. Um, and in fact, I used to write a regular history feature for the Times about like the first mentions of famous people and things in the Times might be like the cheeseburger or Winston Churchill or, you know, whatever. Um, and so I knew my way around the archives. And when I saw this mention of an informer getting uh, shot in New York, uh, it was easy to dig up the story. And there it was splashed across the front page. Um, it was a very big story at the time. It was uh, it was on the front page of The New York Times. It was a banner headline in some other city newspapers. And um, the accounts were very, um, very detailed. There were lots of witnesses to the shooting. 
And so once I saw that, I, I was kind of, you know, intrigued. And um, I dug up um, uh, in the, uh, uh, I didn't realize it, but just searching online, I found, I found out that the uh, Irish military archives uh, has witness statements from former IRA men. Um, and they're all online. And there was a very detailed account from the trigger man. Danny Healy in the New York shooting that was online. And I read that and I, I just said, oh, my God, this is like an amazing story. Um, the uh, the the Irish archives had the military archives had redacted about a page of uh, Dan Healy's uh, witness statement to. Uh, the Bureau of Military History. Um, and it was the one page where he actually described, you know, pulling the trigger and and shooting this informer, um, Cruxy O'Connor. And uh, I thought, you know, I understand why they did this uh, back in the 50s uh, when they took the statement, but everybody's been dead for decades. So I sent the, I sent the uh, military archives an email saying, Hey, is there any chance you think you might be able to give me this redacted, you know, portion? And I thought that one of a few things would happen. I, they'd either say no, or they'd say, fill out these 15 forms and send us $700, or we'll take this under review and get back to you in nine months. Uh, but much to my surprise, when I woke up the next morning, I poured myself a cup of coffee, opened a phone. There's an email with the redacted portion from the Irish military archives. And uh, I, I've never seen a government move that quickly on any request for information. And I've been in the newspaper business for four decades. So, uh, you know, kudos uh, to, to the uh, kudos to the Irish military archives. Good. Um, you, you actually mentioned there about the, the shooting itself. We, we, we'll get to that Um the the shooting itself made the 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 front page, I mean, the headline, the front page. But even even one of the ambushes that O'Connor was involved in back in Cork, which he was kind of involved in, um, uh, that actually made that made the front page of the New York Times. That of, of all the things in the book, that that was one of them that stood out the most to me because it wasn't even one of the biggest ambushes of the War of Independence, but yet over over here it would make a headline that 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 shocked me yeah i think the reason um uh that that um ambush made the big headline it wasn't so much the death count it was the size of the forces involved there, there were um it, it was a it was a big action in terms of personnel there were scores of uh, IRA men from uh, a couple of different flying columns uh, involved. So it was, I think it was more, you know, the scale of the attack than, you know, the, the, the casualty numbers on, on, on either side. Right. And with, with, with that in mind, actually, I, I was looking up some of the stats. I, I know, I, I know, obviously the, the fact that the migration caused by the famine um, it, it had a huge effect on, on Ireland, but but also America, you know, it, when you look at some of the numbers, I mean, there, what, what was it? Um, in the, apparently in the decade, in the decade following 1945, 
and there was nearly a million, there was 900,000 um, Irish immigrants into New York alone. Now, all of them, all of them obviously didn't stay there, but but there was there was loads of immigration afterwards. Between, yeah, but sorry, in, in the 1940s, nearly half of all immigrants to this country were Irish. Um, you, you might give us you might give us like a little bit of an impression of how much uh, support existed here in New York um, for for the, the war that was raging at home. There was an astonishing degree of support for the IRA uh, in the War of Independence in New York. Uh, there was support uh, from the uh, New York Police Department. There were some, there was support from the labor unions. Uh, there was support from the Catholic Church. Um, at at one point, this is what this was a, a fact that astonished me. Uh, there's a church here in 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 Manhattan that was car run by Carmelite uh, brothers from Ireland, and um, at and they were very active in supporting gun running. They were so active in supporting gun running that at one point they had so many guns stacked up in the sacristy that they were afraid the floor was going to give way. So they had to move them to the basement. You know, uh, 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 it was, um, you know, there were 500 Tommy guns stored in this church. Um there was a uh, um, uh, a union uh, uh, leader in New York who was uh, active in uh, in the Marine Engineers Union, and uh, so he had a lot of connections on the waterfront, and he organized this effort um, to smuggle 500 Thompson machine guns into Ireland, and they went from the uh, manufacturer to um a like warehouse in the bronx and then they were moved to this catholic church in manhattan and then they moved to uh they were loaded in burlap bags and um you know taken to a motor launch on the hudson and from there uh to this ship that was docked in hoboken and they got 500 guns aboard um those guns if they had reached ireland would have had an immediate and very huge impact on the war for independence. Um, it didn't work out for a number of reasons, one of which was that there was an, an assistant cook on the ship who was not in on the plot. And he saw this burlap bag outside um, the, uh, uh, the galley. And I, I guess thinking it was a sack of potatoes or something, slid it open and much to his surprise, found the muzzle of, of a, a Thompson machine gun and started screaming bloody murder. Um, so uh, but uh, so you had these union guys who were very involved. I mean, I mean, at one point in uh, in 1920, the longshoremen here, uh, the dock workers uh, went out and strike um, and they refused to handle any British shipping. So the labor movement uh, was very involved. Elements of the Catholic Church were very involved. The NYPD, the police department, well, I, I shouldn't just limit it to the NYPD because um, Hoboken too, yeah. the Hoboken police department and basically the entire government <laughs> structure in Hoboken was run by Irish Americans who were supporting the gun running effort um, uh, to the point where when U.S. customs officials uh, 
confiscated those 500 Thompson guns uh, and pulled them off the ship. The Hoboken Police Department showed up and confiscated those 500 Tommy guns from the customs men. And then there was this ridiculous and in some ways hilarious court battle um, over over who would uh, over who would get the guns. Um, the folks who were doing the gun running came up with this story that um, they had actually been stolen from their rightful owner and put on that boat by some thief. And therefore, the Hoboken cops should be in charge instead of the customs people. Um, but that was just uh, a crazy story. There were there were New York um, patrolmen, New York uh, members of the New York Police Department who would ride uh, ride shotgun um, when trucks full of guns and ammo were being, you know, moved around New York and were headed for the docks just so that if um, if they got stopped, because you have to remember, this was all happening during Prohibition. And the police were very suspicious of, um, you know, trucks carrying illegal cargo and uh, because they, they figured it was booze, you know, instead of bullets and guns. Um, but there was one case where where uh, uh, a carload with I think it had 17000 rounds of ammunition in it got stopped and. Um, the IRA man who who was behind the wheel uh, assumed he'd be safe in the hands of an NYPD officer because the you know the police department was so heavily Irish at that point. Um, but unfortunately, um, he was dealing with a Polish American lieutenant rather than a, an Irish American lieutenant, and uh, <clears throat> the Polish American lieutenant was was not at all sympathetic to 17,000 rounds of uh, ammunition being moved through Manhattan. So these guys got thrown in the clink. But um, by the time they uh, landed in court, uh, conversations had been had with certain high-ranking members of the police department. And so they ended up being charged with some totally minor offense and, and paid like, you know, like a $1 fine. And were let go. And on the way out of court, uh, several uh, high-ranking Irish-American uh, members of the uh, uh, New York Police Department stopped them and said, sorry about this. This Polish guy didn't know what he was doing. <laughs> and by the way, here's a phone number, you know, where you can recover your 17,000 rounds of ammunition. Thank you to the kindly and helpful members of the NYPD. So there was an amazing amount of support. There were politicians involved. Um, high, there were uh, prosecutors um, involved. Uh, one of the reasons the three cork gunmen um, got away with it, there were a few reasons for that. But one of them was that um, a, a, a prosecutor in New York uh, who was a big supporter of Irish independence, helped put the kibosh on the case. He just, he didn't want this thing to go anywhere. Uh, so there was a lot of support uh, in the 19, in the early 1920s. In sharp contrast to, um, you know, the 1970s, the 1980s, the 1990s, uh, during the Troubles, you, you, you just didn't see that kind of, 
there were there were there were maybe have may have been individuals in the NYPD uh, who helped out during the helped out the IRA during the troubles. In fact, um, uh, Jimmy Breslin wrote a great novel, uh, and that was the conceit of it. It was about a patrolman from New York who goes over to Northern Ireland in the uh, in the seventies and 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 has his eyes opened a bit about you know discrimination. Um, but you may have had individuals like that, but uh, institutionally, it, you, you didn't have the kind of backing that you did in the 1920s. It was really eye-opening. Um, th that um, that story, the, the book goes into it in, in a lot more detail, but that story about the, the kind of doomed Tommy guns, fascinating. The book itself, the book itself is full of like sub stories. Um, like I said, like I said before, before we started recording, like I, I I've read, I probably read like probably most of the literature on War of Independence, but but even then, I learned I learned so much. Some of these small little things. We might get into. I guess the book kind of focuses on four men, and um, there's Patrick O'Connor, and there's the the three man hit team. Um, so uh, yeah, you 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 might go into like their backgrounds for us, um, how 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 they led to this confluence. Um, uh, up in up, up in eighty third Street next to Central Park. Yeah, eighty fourth and Central Park West. Yeah, the interesting thing is that these four guys were all members of the same IRA unit. They were all from the same neighborhood, um, so they had known each other, you know, um, for a long time. Uh, they they were. This is not like you know. Um, a bunch of guys just thrown together into a military unit from different backgrounds and everything. They were, they were all from, um, you know, uh, the Sunday Wells, Sunday's well portion of, of, uh, of Cork. And so you had, um, Cruxy O'Connor, his real name was Patrick O'Connor or Patty O'Connor. Um, a lot of people in Cork call them Connors, uh, which is not unusual. My mother was an O'Connor, and people always called my my grandfather Jim Connors, you know, and uh, so he's uh, Cruxy is better known in Cork probably as Connors rather than as O'Connor. But um, he was an interesting guy in a very weird way. I mean, he kept switching sides. He started off as a spy for the crown. Um, at some point, he stopped um, providing information. Uh, to the authorities and switched over to and switched to the IRA. And he um, uh, he killed at least one. Um, ironically, he killed an informer. He executed an informer for the IRA. Um, and uh, he was a member of a flying column, um, uh, took part in the that that big ambush we were uh, talking about earlier at Kulavokig. Um, forgive me if I mispronounce the name, but uh, and he had oddly a real um, mania about prostitutes. He would get into fights with prostitutes if he if they said anything to him as he was passing them on his way to work. He would he beat up at least two prostitutes. And then after he joined the IRA, he enlisted the Cork Brigade in his campaign against um, against prostitutes and, in fact, was uh, convinced them to uh, conduct a roundup. And so he and um, 
another IRA man from the neighborhood, Stan Barry, um, uh, they got a van and uh, they went around, they rounded up several, uh, I think it was like six prostitutes and, or suspected prostitutes and um, uh, carted them off to um, one of these Magdalene laundries. And uh, Stan Barry's in his uh, account of what happened, he said, um, O'Connor was all for beating these women. Um, and uh, he, you know, Stan Barry said, I treated them all like a perfect gentleman. But yeah, he was a weird guy. He had a, a real mania about prostitutes. He was eventually um, caught with a handgun um, uh, on his way to church and uh, turned informer and got six IRA men uh, killed when the um, Black and Tans uh, raided a, a safe house in Ballycannon uh, outside Cork City. So um, he was kind of <clears throat> complicated guy. Um, the three men who came after him were uh, were interesting. Um, there was Pa Murray, whose real name was they called him Pa because his initials were PA for Patrick A. Murray. He was a he was a student at University College Cork, um, and then. Um, joined the IRA. Uh, and uh, there was also Martin Donovan, who of the three was uh, uh, older. He was in his early thirties. Uh, he was the very first of the volunteers in Cork City back when the, uh, uh, when the volunteers were formed uh, in, what was that, 1914? Yeah. He was the first guy to sign up. Um, and then there was Danny Healy, who was... Um, the trigger man uh, in, in the New York shooting. And um, uh, he was, he was an interesting guy. He was, uh, you know, um, a veteran IRA gunman who had been in on um, any number of operations. He had help. He, he was on the team that assassinated uh, the provincial um, police commander um, in uh, the Cork County club. Um, guy named Smith or Smythe. I'm not sure how it's, it's pronounced. Um, uh, and the interest that what, what interested me about, um, Danny Healy was, well, he, he did this very detailed, um, account of his activities in the IRA for the, um, uh, Irish military archives, the Bureau of Military History. Um, and, uh, he, he froze immediately after the shooting. And there's this interesting scene where, um, and you know what's going through his mind because he told this to the historians. He's, he's, not, in, he's not in Ireland, he's not in Cork. Um, he's in New York. And there, it was, a, it was a fine spring evening when the ambush took place. And there were a lot of people out walking and, um, they, so there was a horde of people like staring at him as he shot O'Connor. And then they started to chase him. And there was a getaway car ready for him to hop into, just get the hell out of there. 
And um, after he froze, um, he froze immediately after the shooting. And then um, uh, Martin Donovan yells to him, run for it, Danny, run. And so he starts running. But instead of getting in the car, he just runs and runs. And, and um, he's clearly not thinking straight. He's kind of out of his element. And this mob of people um, uh, starts chasing him because they think it's it's an underworld hit in new york they think it has something to do with i guess bootlegging or prohibition or whatever um they're not thinking you know irish republican army um and so there's like 50 people chasing him and martin donovan who um had to toss his gun earlier when it misfired so he doesn't have a gun on him and he knows he's got to stop this crowd from chasing um, Danny Healy. And he does it alone. He climbs out of the car and he faces this crowd. There's like close to 50 of them and there's one of him. And he's got to pull off a bluff. So he reaches into his pocket as if he's got a gun in there. And he says to the guy, who's leading this posse, where do you think you're going? Are you looking for trouble? And the guy stops in his tracks and looks at Martin Donovan and turns on his heels and starts heading in the other direction. So it's kind of this amazing scene where Martin Donovan like faces down, an unarmed Martin Donovan faces down, um, you know, dozens of 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 people um so he was an interesting character he he i think he felt some loyalty i think he felt a lot of loyalty to danny healy because he was the one who talked healy into joining the operation and i think he felt responsible for him and later when it was all over you know um the three uh these three this trio from cork they went on a a little bit of an East Coast tour. They went up to Boston. They went down to Philadelphia. And then they, it was time to go home. And uh, Danny Healy was warned that um, the authorities might have his name. So he couldn't get on. They had booked passages for the three of them on a boat. And uh, he was told not to go on a boat and they would have to make alternative arrangements. And Martin Don again, Martin Donovan, I get feeling responsible for Danny Healy, passed up his passage on this on this boat and stayed with Dan Healy in New York until they could um stow away as as coal stokers <laughs> on uh on a transatlantic liner. Um so I that interest that that relationship between those two was was kind of interesting too. It's funny those um those guns that you mentioned the ones that um were used in the attack they were actually provided by someone who tried to get the Tommy guns over his name his name was Jimmy McGee. Yes, yes, yeah. Um and uh uh Jimmy McGee was quite a character. Um he in fact uh, one of his um it was his grandson got in touch with me uh, after after he read the book. But, um, you know, McGee um, got put in charge of this huge operation 
he needed to get a whole boat. It, the, the scheme was to, to get a ship. And the cover story would be that they were going to bring a load of coal to the people in Dublin who had been left destitute uh, by the rising or, but you know, by the rebellion. And, but the scheme was that coal was only going to be there to cover the, the 500 Tommy guns. <laughs> so um, uh, McGee um, had to find the, had to find the right ship. And he, he found a ship and he had to get, you know, the guns on board. He was not the biggest advocate of this plan of sending them all over, you know, kind of like one big throw of the dice. Um, but uh, uh, Michael Collins, like, wanted those guns and he wanted them badly. And he wanted them like yesterday. I mean, there was a desperate shortage of guns. Uh, the IRA really needed um, these guns. They even had a plan uh, drawn up. Uh, I didn't get into this in the book, but they had a plan uh, drawn up for how many guns would be allotted to each county um, out of the out of out of the five hundred. Um, so, uh, yeah, McGee kept kept warning the other folks who were involved this is going to be really tricky um and and it was i mean he, to, one of the complicating factors for him is that the union of which he was a leader was on strike at the time so he <clears throat> they're trying to get these guns on a on a boat on a ship but there are picket lines up all over the waterfront and they're his union's picket lines, and he he can't be seen anywhere near a ship because his union's on strike. So um, that really complicated, you know, uh, matters for him. And um, uh, at at uh, you know at one point, some of the the sailors who he had recruited for this job, um, you know, went back to him and said, maybe we ought to after they got the guns on the boat. Um, some watchmen uh, found a few of them after the, that assistant cook uh, slid open that burlap bag. He, he started screaming bloody murder and some watchmen came on board. So some of the sailors went back to uh, Jimmy McGee and said, we got it. Now we got to get the guns off the boat. Well, you know, it was to get them to get them to get those guns on the boat. They had to get them past the New York Police Department. They needed to get them past the Harbor Patrol. They needed to get them past customs. They needed to get them past um, the watchmen hired by the ship's owner. And they needed to get them past his own striking union. So um, uh, offloading them and then like reloading them was going to be a really complicated situation. And um uh, and it didn't happen. But uh, that whole tale is is just it's an insane tale. I, I was going to say, I, I say this with almost every book um, whose author I've, uh, I've uh, interviewed in the last year to, to the point where it's almost a cliche. But my God, like when I was reading this, I was thinking like Netflix series, this would be perfect. This would be perfect <laughs> for like eight or 10 episodes. The kind of that kind of 1920s Peaky Blinders aesthetic yeah. is, is very much in. 
at the moment too. I, I, people would love it. it. It's written. I mean, you you couldn't make this story up. Like it almost sounds like fiction, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a wild story that the poisoning attempt in uh, Victoria Barracks. You know, um, uh, that was just that, that was that was crazy. There's um, uh, a professor at um, University College Cork uh, who is an expert on this era, John Borgavino, and um, he tipped me off about um, that poisoning episode he's he said uh just for context um, I, i've read it but but for the audience we, we, we're talking about a an appointing attempt on patrick o'connor yes yes when he was in the ira tried to poison him while he was in british custody in cork in uh, the victoria barracks and um the woman who uh led the attempt um by <laughs> by posing as his mother to deliver a home-cooked meal um, and, and the description of the meal was that there was like, quote, enough strychnine to poison a regiment, uh, in, in this meal. So this woman, um, dressed up as Mrs. O'Connor and she had the shawl, you know, and she had the basket. And meanwhile, a bunch of IRA men detained the real Mrs. O'Connor, but, um, yeah, uh, I, this professor at UCC said you have to check out her uh, this woman's pension application. It's online. Uh, she she applied for you know a pension for her service in the IRA, and there's a very detailed description of her activities. So I got this account of how she dressed up as Mrs. O'Connor and carried this poison meal into the heart of you know. British power in Cork um, from this pension application. And it was just tremendous. And, um, you know, she had a very close call when the real Mrs. O'Connor broke away from the IRA squad that was supposed to detain her and marched off to the Victoria barracks. And as the fake Mrs. O'Connor was leaving the barracks, the real Mrs. O'Connor was marching in because she knew that um that she knew that something was up she knew they were going to try and do something uh to her son and she got there just in the nick of time uh to prevent him from eating the meal but um you know this the, I, the book is just filled with crazy stories um like that uh, it, the intelligence war in cork was uh, amazing i mean people always think of spy versus spy and like berlin in the 1960s you know cork in the early 1920s um was the equivalent of berlin in the 1960s <laughs> and speaking of speaking of women um uh, a, a a huge huge chunk of the the intelligence gathering um side of the thing what was done by women and um, most famously the the bloody sunday in 1920 when the um, when when that lot of um of fairly elite um british operators came over and i believe it was a note found by like a housemaid in a bin that that was that, that uh tipped them off to where they were and then they were able to go slaughter them yeah. um what, what else was i gonna say to you um okay okay oh sorry so um, from the time from the time Patrick O'Connor betrayed his unit and got got six or seven of them killed, um, up until the the point where they got their revenge, 
there's um he might take us through uh that time and it it, it kind of it shows how much how much they really wanted him you know they they, they made they made like multiple attempts they, they they did not give up on him you know yeah um i i'll get into that one thing i do want to mention one really interesting really interesting thing about the timing which was he got his six ira comrades killed uh at valley cannon on it was during easter week it was the wednesday of easter week spy wednesday um and uh if i ever if they ever make a movie out of this i think the title should be spy wednesday <laughs> but when the ira shot him when they ambushed him in new york it was they got him on the thursday of holy week and in fact, Danny Healy commented uh, on that. He said, ah, a year and a day later after. And so I think that was kind of deliberate. Um, I think they wanted to time it that way um, as kind of a message. Now, according to the regular calendar, it was not a year and a day, but according to the church calendar, it was, right? Um, so in between... Um, uh, when these guys get killed, uh, the six guys get killed um, during the raid on the farm in uh, in Ballycannon. So um, after the poisoning attempt, the Brits try to, well, the, they don't try to, they get um, O'Connor out of Cork. Um, they ship him off to London. And, it, you know, uh, given the number of Irish in London, it's not long before um, the IRA tracks him down because he runs into um, the sister of uh, one of his IRA comrades, a guy who served in the flying column with him uh, on a street in London. And they just kind of like strike up a conversation like, you know, how's it going? What's up? You know, um, and uh, so. And he's also mailing letters to his family, which are being intercepted and read. So the IRA dispatches Danny Healy and another guy to um, uh, Hammersmith to in London uh, because uh, O'Connor is supposed to pick up a letter from his family there. But somehow the British get word that there are a couple of IRA men stalking him. So he leaves London and uh, goes to Liverpool, gets a, um, takes a ship to America with his, with his brother and they settle in New York. Now, back in Cork, um, over the summer of 21, the truce is declared with Britain. And um, that's all well and good, but there's no, there's no truce in the hunt for O'Connor. Uh, they are going to get him. So um, they have to, they, um, they know he's gone to New York. Um, they had a mole in British headquarters, uh, Joe Marchment, whose story is absolutely fascinating. Um, and after the truce, she escorts her um, sister to uh, a ship that is sailing from Cork or Cove, to New York and her, they know that O'Connor's family is going to be on the ship. So um, 
Joe Marchman's sister gets on the ship to kind of uh, help track them and him. And so they eventually get, uh, oh, and then they get word that he's working at a department store in, 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 um, in Manhattan. So once they have that, they send um, Paul Mary, Martin Donovan, and Danny Healy uh, over. And um, they, they then have to begin the hunt. They do a stakeout um, at the department store. But he uh, O'Connor apparently spots them because he stops showing up for work. And then they, you know, uh, they maintain the, the stakeout at, at uh, the department store for a while, but he's just not showing up. And they finally figure out how to track him down. And and they do. But they're there for, you know, several, several months. Um, they're in New York for several months uh, from, you know. January through um, April, uh, so. And the the book goes into the the book goes into like the actual assassination in great detail and the the chase and everything. There's a slight irony that on his deathbed, which wasn't really a deathbed, it was a pavement outside Central Park. Um, even then, he actually was asked um who shot him, and a famous rat uh, didn't rat. Um, for his last words, there was, there's something kind of funny about that. Yeah, it's um. At, at one point, I describe him as the spy who stopped spying, the gunman who stopped shooting, and the informer who stopped informing. <laughs> he was he was uh, a hard guy to figure out. <laughs> um, there's another. I'll I'll let you go there soon enough. Um, uh, again, one of one of these like like small kind of sub stories in the in the book. Um, is there is a, a similar story to this one in in that there was a traitor this in this case it was the IRB um it was in the 1880s and they dated something similar where they went and tracked down a traitor you, you you might tell us a bit about that yeah um that was a really interesting case so um there was a double assassination uh in Phoenix Park in Dublin uh it was um Britain's top representative in Ireland uh, and his number two man. And there was some breakaway faction of um, the IRB. Um, and they killed these guys with surgical knives. Um, and a investigate, of course, there was, you know, this was a sense. This was probably one of the most sensational assassinations in Irish history. I mean, it was in a very public place and it's in Phoenix Park as the two highest ranking British British officials, you know, in Ireland. Uh, so there was an intense investigation and they picked up a guy uh, named Carey who, um, who eventually talked to save his neck and he gave away several accomplices uh, who were all hanged and um but then they had to get uh Carrie and his family out of Ireland and so he was shipped off to South Africa and uh while he was on a ship off of South Africa he was shot by a fellow named O'Donnell uh from Donegal who had a very interesting resume um O'Donnell's family had uh, moved to the anthracite region of Pennsylvania 
where the Molly Maguires were very active and, you know, violently fighting um, the all-powerful coal companies and their private army and their, you know, private detectives and everything. Um, several members of O'Donnell's family uh, were killed by a vigilante mob after a private detective infiltrated the Molly Maguires. Um, the husband of another O'Donnell cousin named Jack Keogh was hanged um, as supposedly the head of the Molly Maguires. So O'Donnell had no love of informers <laughs> and spies. Um, and in fact, there were reports, somebody wrote a letter to the editor of a paper that said, that O'Donnell himself had been a, a top man in the Molly Maguires in, in Pennsylvania. Um, so he was um, arrested, uh, convicted, and, and hanged um, for uh, the killing, for killing this informer like thousands of miles from, from Ireland. Um, it's, it's, it's not totally clear um, whether O'Donnell was acting on his own behalf or on behalf of an organization like the IRB or, you know, this uh, breakaway group, the Invincibles, you know, it's, um, it kind of comes down to what people heard right before the shooting took place. <laughs> um, uh, some people heard one thing, some people heard, heard another thing, but um, the New York shooting was not the first time that an Irish informer was, uh, uh, that vengeance was taken upon an Irish informer, you know, thousands of miles from home. Um, okay, so as a final thing on the on the back cover of the book and, and like the description, it says, um, it says an account of the only officially sanctioned IRA attack ever conducted on American soil. Can I can I take from that that there's been others, but they just haven't been sanctioned? Do you know anything? Well, I mean, there, there things have happened. Um, the attack in New York was paid for by IRA, GHQ, um, Michael Collins um, uh, authorized it. Uh, um, uh, in fact, the th some of the guys on their way to America, they went to London with Collins as part of the contingent that was going to negotiate the treaty. So we know that Collins uh, had approved this thing. It was totally approved and on high. There have been a few things that have happened in the United States. They didn't involve IRA members coming to this country. But, um, for example, during the Troubles, I think in the 19 early 1970s, there was an incident where a letter bomb got mailed to the British Embassy in Washington. And I think a, a secretary there uh, lost a finger or two when she opened it. Um, now, technically, the British Embassy in Washington is uh, not U.S. soil. It's British. So it's British soil, you know. Nobody, um, uh, there was no claim of responsibility for that. Um, we don't know for absolute certain it, that it was an IRA thing. There were the IRA, there was an IRA unit in London that was sending out letter bombs at the time. So it was 
most probably their work. But was it, you know, did someone uh, on the uh, Army Council say, yeah, it's okay to send letter bombs to the United States? I, you know, we don't know that. Uh, we do know that um, that Collins authorized this shooting. And, and, and again, um, you know, that didn't involve people. Uh, it didn't involve boots on the ground in the United States. I got you. I get you. Very good. Um, for anyone, um, anyone who's listened this far, please buy the book. It's absolutely brilliant. Um, it goes into way, way more stories and more detail um, than we've spoken about. We, we, we just kind of went, we just kind of painted like the broad strokes. Um, and if anyone, if anyone listening happens to work for Netflix or HBO or someone, please, <laughs> please, please make this into a series. It'll be great. Um, anything, uh, anything you want to leave us with there? No, I just want to thank you for having me on. This was great. I really appreciate it. And I've I've enjoyed talking to you. Thank you very much. I I appreciate you taking the time. Um if, if you ever um ever write anything um in you know a similar theme, I, I'd love to speak again about it. Sure.